Hey, I'm Sam Dover, and you're listening to City Road. Last week, we listened to a panel on endangered communities and how our cities are being threatened by ongoing gentrification and predatory developers. If you missed it, definitely check that one out. In this week's episode, Endangered Discourse, we're pulling back a bit and having a look at the conversations and politics that surround these issues. Our panel is headed once again by the director of the Henry Halloran Trust, Professor Nicole Gurren, who has extensive experience in urban planning and housing policy analysis. We'll also be hearing from Tina Perinotto, managing editor and founder of The Fifth Estate, an online newspaper for green buildings and sustainable cities. And we've got Erin Brady, Deputy Director General of the Environment, Planning and Sustainable Development Directorate in the ACT government. And Eliza Owen, Head of Research at CoreLogic Australia. But I'll let Nicole introduce the first panellist, Professor Peter Phibbs. Professor Phibbs was the first Australian-born Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Sydney. I have the privilege of being the second and he has over 20 years experience undertaking housing research. And that's actually a very good starting point for my first question. So Peter, I think it's fair to say that you've spent your career trying to inform and improve urban and housing policy. Have you succeeded? Nicole, um, I don't think so. Um, possibly um, my students maybe are better informed, but yeah, I'm not really sure the conversations change much in. Um, in uh, you know the twenty years, unfortunately. So um, let, let me start by thanking you, Nicole, for that um, very generous introduction. And good afternoon, everyone. And a special shout out to my ex students in the audience, um, which uh, I, I think there's a considerable number, and in, including Erin um, Brady, my co-panelist. But um, I wanted to start the conversation by making some general points about the style and quality of the narrative, particularly focusing on housing. And then just have a quick look at a couple of recent government documents and processes, just as case studies. And I guess, Nicole, the striking feature for me as an academic looking at the narrative on housing issues in Australia um, over the last 20 years is, is how dishonest the narrative is being. Everyone pushes their own barrow. Now, if I'm dealing with a development group, I sort of get that. Um, they are lobbying on behalf of their members, doing what academics call strategic misrepresentation which uh, some of the people out in webinar land might know better as lying. Um, this is almost expected. For, even um, going back to the Festival of Urbanism, I think in 2017, we gave, we gave the Property Council of Australia the Fake, Fake Facts Award that year for their misrepresentation of building approvals in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, I mean, I guess even when politicians push a particular point of view to deflect criticism, it's annoying, but perhaps not any unexpected. I guess my particular pet hate is when paid public servants engage in the same nonsense, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. Now, I just wanted to recount what um, I think I, I, Nicole and I probably have come to call a game of homes. And, and one of the advantages of um, uh, being older, Nicole, is you, um, you've got a longer time series to go back and look at um, repeat behaviours. Um, you know, and in the Australian uh, situation, um, you can see the same thing happen. So this, this is what, what I think happens. It goes like this. House prices start rising quickly. You know, it happens quite a lot. It's happening at the moment. Lots of people, especially younger people, try to get into their market and their, their parents might have to fund them. Um, social organisations like ACOS, you know, they express serious concern. 
government like bats it back for a while and then they decide to hold an inquiry to find out what's going on. To get to the bottom of the process, they hold a, a, a lot of times a national inquiry, they call for submissions, and the responses um, from those submissions are very predictable. And if you go, if you went back and looked at you know all the, all those submissions into the numerous inquiries over the last 20 years, they more or less say the same thing. Um, developer lobbies and right-wing think tanks say that the only problem is red tape, taxes, and planning regulation. They always hate planning regulation. Federal government agencies say that this is a land supply issue and that they should go to talk to state governments. Um, the Reserve Bank says it's nothing to do with us, but we are monitoring the housing market carefully. Um, and the Grattan Institute usually blames NIMBYs, and they've got lots of nice orange graphs to back that position up. But often in this whole, whole narrative, the main bad guy is the planning system and more directly local government's role in, in that system. So um, I, I find that um, like I find that weird. I find it particularly weird given the changes in the planning system that have made local government much less important. But I think that the main um, theme here amongst politicians is to sound concerned, blame someone else, and then do nothing. Um, you know, I think the only thing that's really changed in my career is that politicians now are much better at sounding concerned about housing affordability problems. Um, I was on an affordable housing task force with um, Brad Hazard when he was the Minister of Planning. Um, he, he almost brought me to tears at the first meeting when he, when he was describing how concerned he was about housing affordability. Um, Gladys couldn't sleep at night because she was worried about it. Um, there's the moral imperative to do something for future generations. But when push comes to shove, they almost do nothing. And the thing they're terrified about is house prices falling. And just look at the stimulus we've pushed into the housing market with home builder and the state government concessions in the pandemic when they weren't really necessary given um, the sharp decline in interest rates that the Reserve Bank delivered. So I think the problem's a pretty simple one. The majority of voters are homeowners. They love talking about the rising value of their assets. Um, and I, I suspect we're not going to see much fundamental change until um, the majority of, of voters are renters. Um, we, people talk about policy failure in the Australian housing system. I don't think we've had policy failure. I think the system's operated exactly um, the way people wanted it to behave. So, look, I just wanted to focus on a... Um, a report from the New South Wales um, Productivity Commissioner, okay, that came out in May this year. We talked a little bit about the, um, the background paper, Nicole, at the festival last year in how to analyse a government report. And I, I just wanted to focus on a couple of things from this report. Now, the first one is a graph 7.2 in the report that talks about housing supplies not keeping up with our needs, okay? So what it, what it shows in this graph is right you know, since 2006, right into the future, all we can see is a shortage of housing in Sydney. This is talking about the Sydney housing market. Now, the sort of underlying message in that narrative is planning must be busted because there's been such a shortage of dwellings over such a long period of time. And, um, you know, people would be concerned. Now, the, the classic strategy they use in this graph is um, they, they use essentially four strategies to construct this narrative of surplus, um, sorry, of shortage. Okay, so the first thing they do is they use a very old person's per household rate. So they use the rate from 2006. Now, what we've known in, in Sydney and other cities is since 2006, the number of persons per household has increased. And that's not surprising as housing gets more expensive. You know, 
go back to your supply and demand graph from introduction to economics. And as things get more expensive, people consume less of it. So housing's the same, we get more people per dwelling. Now, if we'd use the 2016 household formation rates, instead of a shortage, we'd actually have a, a, a surplus of um, housing for um, a large part of this graph. Okay, the second strategy they use is they ignore student housing. Now, in Sydney and Melbourne, to a lesser extent, Canberra, Erin, um, special purpose student housing has been a very popular form of accommodation. Now, the large surge in population in, in our capital city since 2010, a large component of those are international students. When they go into that special purpose accommodation, because they're sharing kitchens, they're not regarded as dwellings. Okay, so they don't come out in the ABS counts of dwelling completions, okay, because of that, the nature of those dwellings. Um, but in these graphs, they include those international students in the population count, but they ignore the additional stock from student accommodation. Okay, so that helps to construct a shortage. This, the third thing is you um, ignore the fact that about half that population increase uh, is coming from um, natural increase. You know, it's essentially um, deaths minus births. So a lot of people, if their family gets bigger, one of the ways they react to that is they simply renovate and extend their dwelling. Okay, so that's not counted in these figures. So that's weird. But again, that helps push the shortage narrative. And the last one, they ignore the fact that a large proponent of that growth are temporary international migrants and for a lot of those people, they're on lower incomes. A lot of times they're on, um, you know, special visas and they tend to crowd into housing to make it cheaper. Okay, so go look at flatmates.com and have a look at um, some of that um, housing. And you can see, you know, pictures in a two-bedroom flat where people have cut up the lounge room into four to um, put four small bedrooms. Okay, so all those reasons, I, I'd suggest that the shortage narrative is one that's um, completely constructed, essentially to help make that point. Okay, so the other, other thing that um, government reports do is they make stuff up. So this is a little clip from that um, Productivity Commission report. After a long trend of decreasing household sizes, the greater Sydney household began to increase again. In Melbourne and Brisbane, average household remained steady despite experienced faster population growth. So they're saying the planning system's constrained Sydney so much, um, people have got to crowd in houses because um, things are, aren't working all that well and we've got this shortage. Now, here's just um, a, uh, a graph that shows the average household size, and these from ABS census tables from Sydney and Melbourne. And they show there's been an identical increase in, in household sizes um, in both Sydney and Melbourne from two, gone up by um, 0.1 between 2006 and 2016. So I'm not sure what um, data they're using, but if they're using census data, um, what they're saying is, is strategic misrepresentation at its best. And I just wanted to finish with the current parliamentary inquiry, the federal government's running housing affordability and supply in Australia, which is being led by Jason Falinski. Now, if you read the press release, you sort of wonder why they're actually having an inquiry at all, because they seem to have actually come up with the um, findings of the inquiry before they start. But I just wanted to focus on um, a point they make, and they're saying that the, uh, the um, Australian housing system is unresponsive, particularly the planning system, and they use this fact, okay? They're saying that total residential building approvals decreasing 40% across the nation um, from 2016 to 2020 compared to the previous five-year period, according to ABS. Now, you'd be worried about that. You know, if, if your planning system 
Um, you know, 2016 prices are still rising. If your planning system suddenly went into reverse, despite those price increases, maybe Jason's on the money here. Maybe the planning system is the problem. Now, the only trouble with that, Nicole, is it's actually the facts incorrect. Um, now, when I had a look and I had it um, confirmed uh, by one of my colleagues, instead of there being a 44% decrease, there was actually a 10% increase in, in um, housing approvals across those two periods. Okay, so in the narrative, I've got a picture of the narrative, the shortage, constraint, unresponsive. Um, they're essentially engaged in strategic misrepresentation, also known as lying, just to help paint that picture. And that, that's the dishonesty that um, I'm pretty crappy about. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Peter. Not everyone is, is able to access and interpret ABS data and communicate it, you know, uh, clearly and accurately as you are. So um, thanks very much for that, Peter. And we're going to stay on the housing theme for a little bit longer because really the whole housing affordability debate is often sort of pitted against urban planning and good urban planning as though it's one or the other. So I think let's um, let's keep talking about this for a little longer. And I want to turn to Eliza now. And Eliza, you've obviously worked as a housing analyst for a number of agencies, um, you know, including Domain, um, which is, of course, one of the um, main leading media um, outlets in relation to housing reportage. So what do you think of the quality of debate on housing affordability in Australia, especially in the mainstream press? And were you surprised when house prices didn't fall by 30% as were predicted in April last year? Yeah, thanks, Nicole. Um, hi, everyone. And I just want to say thanks so much for having me. When I was um, fresh out of uni and starting my career in housing market research, I made sure to get along to the Festival of Urbanism every year because it was such a great source of information. So big fan of the Festival of Urbanism, big fan of Peter's, uh, and it sort of makes it all the more special for me to be participating today. Um, in regard to your question about the debates around housing affordability, I feel there has been a little bit of a shift over time, certainly in, in my time that I've been researching and reporting about the housing market. I feel like there is at least an acknowledgement that housing is less uh, affordable. <laughs> um, but I do feel that some of it can be um, maybe missing some of the depth and the frankness that, that we need. So, for example, when I was first asked about housing affordability issues during this price increase between 2012, 2017, um, a lot of it was focused on millennials versus boomers and, and really pitting the, the arguments that way. Whereas I think I've come to realise that this is much more uh, complicated. It is a lot more of uh, a wealth issue um, than it is necessarily a, a generational issue. Um, and I think one really important piece that we should start to incorporate in discussions around housing affordability is just the entrenched nature of housing and how it's really been built in to um, be a pillar of the financial system and a pillar of household wealth and implicit piece of retirement as well. So that's what I wanted to convey here. I've just put together some stats that, that we've gathered from CoreLogic and, and other various sources through early September, just to highlight how important 
a high value and and relatively stable housing market is. Um, housing in Australia is estimated to be valued uh, just under $9 trillion, which is about 20% more than the combined value of the ASX, superannuation and commercial real estate combined. So we also see that residential housing makes up more than half of household wealth. It makes up about 60% of bank loan books, uh, the residential mortgage space, Uh, And even more recently, where we've seen a substantial rise in housing market activity off the back of low interest rates coming in and out of lockdowns, um, that transaction activity has led to almost 600,000 property sales in the past 12 months. So considered to be a very important uh, part of the the dissemination of monetary policy, if you like, the, the economic activity and the wealth effects that are associated with that. So all of that kind of speaks to a system in which do we even want prices to go down in that environment? And that's just something I think we need to acknowledge because then we can start having more meaningful discussions of, well, do we want to disentangle that system or do we want to do, say, what the coalition has done with the first home loan deposit scheme and really try and maintain it? while just having, you know, partly guaranteed loans that enable more accessibility to the mortgage side of things. So that's a really important point. In terms of this idea that housing prices would fall 30% off the back of COVID-19, I didn't necessarily think that that was a prediction that would come to fruition just because it was predicated on um, you know, it, it was the the pessimistic kind of scenario released by CBA, predicated on longer term GDP declines, which I think the media really latched onto because it's a very eye catching figure. Instead, what we saw was this: I've just plotted median values to to give you a nice dollar sense of of how properties are tracking over time. Um, the housing market had a peak to trough decline of two percent through COVID. Um, And instead of declining, you know, that more central scenario of 10%, values have wound up about 16, yeah, 16% higher than where they were in March 2020. Now, a lot of that in short, um, because I don't want to take up too much time here, but it's just been the remarkable institutional response from government, the banking sector, um, and, you know, the, the financial regulators, which allowed homeowners to hold on to their home, whether it was supporting people with their mortgage serviceability through JobKeeper payments or the whole banking sector, who, remember, had that 60% loan book exposure to the housing market, saying, okay, well, we'll defer mortgage repayments. So, you know, we'll, you, you can just add that to your accrued debt down the line and, and, and suspend payments for now. And in extraordinary response to extraordinary times. Um, and that has, of course, led to these renewed conversations and challenges around housing affordability. And we can see that here in the, um, this is data produced by CoreLogic and the Australian National University, which shows the amount of time it takes for people to save a deposit. This is the real issue at the moment when it comes to housing affordability. It's all very well that interest rates have gone down, rent costs in some places have gone down. But getting into the market in the first place is just becoming more of a challenge now as a result. I'll leave it there so we can um, get go to the rest of our panelists as well. 
Thanks very much, Eliza, for that really clear um, analysis and also helping remind us that actually the, the people who are most affected by housing affordability in Australia are low-income renters and aspiring first-home owners. I'm going to move to Tina now. Um, Tina, you've actually been part of, well, led one of the very few media outlets that is critical of the kind of discourse that Peter was pointing to in, um, in his discussion, in particular papers like the RBA uh, paper on zoning and its purported impact on housing supply and affordability when it was released um, in recent months. What do you, why do you think uh, you've been a lone voice or your, um, or the Fifth Estate has been a lone voice in this, um, in this media space? And what do you think of the state of media coverage on housing, but also perhaps more widely on urban issues in Sydney? Oh, thanks, Nicole, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me here. It's a great honour because um, the Festival of Urbanism is always a, a big highlight, and I've really enjoyed speaking to Peter over the years, who is one of the few people that can actually nail the issues in a really impartial way, and I just loved his presentation before because it's just spot on. He doesn't, you know, hold back from telling it how, as he sees it. And you know what? There's so few people that do that. And I'm always gobsmacked about that. And I was a little bit piqued when he said, oh, you know, the property council and its uh, role in <laughs> disinformation, because I used to work there. I worked there for six years at editing their magazine. So I actually got a really good insight into the thinking and what was going on. It was actually, you know, deep immersion in, in, you know, in the property industry. And there's very few people who get that opportunity to really understand it, and especially media these days. So, you know, when I was there, you know, it was it was just incredible because I, I, I sort of also not only got the headline stories of, you know, the people out there and what they're trying to do, but also the spin merchanting that was going on behind the scenes and how things were phrased. And the person running the um, property council at that time was an absolute genius at um, spin merchandising. So I got to understand a hell of a lot about, you know, messaging and, and how to extracting the truth. Um, so then after that, you know, I also did six years at the Financial Review and they amazingly let me do what I wanted pretty much. So I was able to actually go and spend time speaking to people. And, um, you know, quite often these stories are lying there in plain view, but you have to spend the time to go and talk to them. And I don't know why, because when I started, they said, we, we expect three stories a day from you. And I went, oh, I'm going to ignore that because <laughs> I was spending a week or two on stories at the time when I went there. And it was actually the beginning of the GFC. So I was actually getting immersed in what was going on. I couldn't believe my eyes to, to hear the buildup of this craziness that was happening with mortgages and, and banks turning a blind eye to, you know, giving loans of a million dollars to a family that's um, on welfare because they've got a disabled son and some mortgage brokers convinced them that they've got to get into this thing. And then there was, you know, the securitisation of the loans and getting to understand the financial system involved. And it absolutely fascinated me because, you know, more and more I started to realise that the built environment, not just housing, but zoning and planning, you know, is the most important 
um, one of the biggest drivers of sustainability and so many other outcomes in the world that are critical to our quality of life, to sustainability, to the fight for the climate and everything. Um, so, you know, um, actually Peter and I had a bit of a chat yesterday and he wanted me to talk about why it's so hard to get the message out there but also why the fifth estate happened. I realised it's the same story because, um, you know, after a while I just had the urge to just I suppose it's a big dream from years ago to have your own publication. Probably a lot of journalists do. The GFC was coming and I thought what a great time to to, um, start a publication because when you're actually in a newspaper or any other organisation writing, you've got a lot of constraints and there's a lot of politics involved. You've got to be very careful, et cetera. But even so, you know, there were some fantastic stories to be told. But I I think I was just lucky to have the time to do it. And I think these days journalists are under enormous pressure. There's, you know, they've got, you know, they're young. They get rid of the older folk who've got the built-up knowledge. There's only a few grey hairs left in the media who really understand the depths of what goes on. And it's really hard to comprehend. It's not like an overt cynicism. People think, oh, you know, people are up for corruption and there's brown paper bags. I don't believe that. It's always behind closed doors. I can, you know, I see the evidence of it. You know, it's closed doors with, you know, a wink and a nod. It's nothing overt. It's a kind of um, helping mates out. I suppose that's human nature too. You help out who you know. But, you know, the the people with the strongest power in society, the organisations that are lobbying for things to government, like to, um, you know, reduce stamp duty, to get rid of stamp duty, to to allow negative gearing. They have got an enormous amount of resources and they get these great big reports done and they go into the politician's office and they slap it on the table. Metaphorically, of course, it's all online now. But, you know, where is the opposite? Where is the opposition to that view? Where are their reports? Where are their coordinated things happening? You know, I see it with environment as well. We're now starting to get a bit of traction on environment and, and climate, but the people who um, are calling for better equity and things like that, they're usually disparate and dispersed. They're all over the place, you know, as these organisations, they get together and they have one big umbrella group that can approach government. So we started up, basically, GFC was coming along. I managed to, so in the old days too, you also had receptionists and quite often you could get past the receptionist if you had your story straight. You could sort of say, oh, is there something there I could talk to about something or, you know, whatever. And I remember getting through to somebody one time who was a chief financial officer of a second-tier bank or something like that. I can't remember now. But they said there's going to be this is enormous train smash coming. And I go, what? <laughs> they go, you know, there's all these mortgages. They're all rotten to the core. Uh, I said, where's the money coming? It's coming from Europe, blah, blah, blah. So you get through. These days you cannot get through. Everyone has a mobile phone or there's no reception. There's a receptionist maybe, but they won't put you through to anyone. And you've got the rise of this really sophisticated PR machine that controls the messaging really, really tightly. So you try and get a story out of a big corporation like Len Lease, they'll tell you when they're ready to tell you and they send out a very controlled message and it's really, really difficult to, to yeah, even when they've got a good story to tell, it's hard to get that story. So we were lucky because we started off, we had nothing to lose, we had no debt, so we could tell the story that we wanted and we could spend as much time as we wanted. So we got some fantastic breakthroughs 
And, uh, you know, I think one of the, I'll just finish now, but just the, one of the stories that exemplifies what's going on is this fantastic piece of legislation that was crafted by the whole industry to improve the building quality of buildings in New South Wales. And everybody loved it. They had round tables, everyone agreed. It went to Parliament. And somewhere between getting approved and signed off by the industry, something happened to by the time that it hit the parliamentary floor, it was absolutely eviscerated. There was nothing left of it, no decent things. And, and you know, no one would ever admit what happened, but they were the same people. They're in the rooms telling, telling, you know, supporting the bill, uh, saying it's fantastic, and then behind where no one's looking, they're into the politician's office and telling them to get rid of all these clauses. So our headline then was who done it. Anyway, that's um, just an example of what goes on. Wow, Tina, I'm sure you've got a whole lot more stories that we'd really love to hear about um, things behind the scenes. But I was really struck by what you um, said about the imbalance between the amount of resources and access to, you know, information, the production of information that lobbyists and industry groups have um, in comparison to alternative voices and advocacy groups. Um, you know, it's a really important theme, I think, in this space. And I'm going to turn now to Erin, who's worked as a planner in so many different parts of Australia and the world. I'm quite envious, actually, Erin. But what I want to ask you is, you know, have you heard in other parts of Australia, we always hear in New South Wales that, that the New South Wales planning system is the worst and, you know, planners are, are the source of all problems, not only in relation to housing supply, but that's up there. Is this something that you've heard um, in other jurisdictions and why do you think that is? And, and what do you think the profession can do to push back against criticism like that? Thank you, Nicole. And it's great to be here at this and it's great to be as an ex-student of Peter who helped me get through my PhD. Um, it's great to be here for many reasons. So, yeah, that the question um, and I guess the suggestion that planning is the problem probably gets me a bit fired up and I think I'd hope that it gets other planners um, fired up and I'm pretty proud to call myself a planner um, and I hope to continue that. Um, I mean, I think planning is exciting, challenging, creative um, and I think a lot of people often don't think it's creative but I, I or, or maybe I think it is and so I make it creative um, but I, I think it, it's a great profession and it's very impactful. So I, I don't think it is the problem and I don't think it's right to just blame planning and planners as a problem, that it's complex and messy. And I often refer to when, you know, I'm working on a planning project um, and say to, to other planners, okay, we're at the spaghetti phase now. It's just a mess and we've got to work through it. That's not to say it might not um, be a bit messy at the end, but we've got to work through a bit of a messy phase to get to things. I don't think we necessarily get to balance. Um, I don't. I don't think that's necessarily something we work toward. But to go to your question, Nicole, I think we don't always use the tools that we have the best we possibly can. And I think that's. I've probably seen a difference when I compare being overseas and in Australia to how we use those tools and how we regard research and evidence. And then also about communication. So I'll, I'll talk to those those items now, just in response to your question. I think one of the things I've found, and um, 
Tina, this might be interested in how you see this, but what I've found particularly in Australia in more recent years is just this desire in the mainstream media to simplify concepts, to use simple concepts. And I think that's sort of what Peter was getting at as well, that, you know, even huge, hugely complex things like housing is just broken down to supply and demand. That, that might sound simple, but it is not simple at all. There are so many other factors that play with that. Similarly, zoning, it's not colours on a map, you know, like it's not that simple um, so you can't just sort of land problems and solutions at just one-off things like that. Another thing I think that's been in increasingly difficult and come through media and communities is, and, and politicians is this view that you're going to somehow arrive at a consensus through planning or that we've got to have some balancing of positions. And I think, you know, there's inherently conflict in planning it's inherently political and so it is messy. So it's not, it's not simple. So I think this simplification doesn't, doesn't help us, but equally I'm prepared to look at, well, are we using the tools and communication the best way we can to address that? Sometimes I wonder and I've experienced certainly what I would think is lazy journalism where the media release that's put out is just picked up. There doesn't seem to be any pursuit of um, the detail or the complexity around something um, and so or a passion for going for just a negative headline rather than positive. We don't often hear that much about some positive stories in the planning arena. So I think that sort of all buys into, well, planning is the problem. Peter made a comment about um, it's a shame when public servants buy into the rhetoric and I take that quite seriously as a public servant and it's certainly something that when I'm talking to planners and they start to get confused, oh, but shouldn't we be saying this, shouldn't we be saying that? My position is we are meant to give the best advice possible. The politics is the politics. That's um, we, we might understand that and think about it, but we are meant to professionally give, uh, give our advice. And I'd probably say in the Middle East um, I found that as a profession, um, I was regarded probably in a better way as an expert and a profession um, and that I could um, speak technically about matters and that was well regarded. And I don't think that's always the case here and particularly in government, I've found increasingly that to um, show that something is robust, we need to have a consultant because a, a government-based um, planner uh, is somehow not regarded as a technical expert, which worries me in terms of just the, the potential de-skilling, but demotivation for planners. Um, because in as a public servant and in government, you get to do some fantastic work. So I think that sort of isn't, a lot of these things just aren't helping us um, with how we're presented as planners and how we present our work. And I think in recent years as well, the domain of planning, other people that interact, other professions that interact with planning um, have probably taken some of that domain and perhaps planners have stayed a bit silent and not pushed back. I mean, we work closely with engineers, architects, urban designers, landscape architects, 
um, economists, loads of other professions, but I think we've some sometimes let um, those other professions step into the arena that is actually for planners and often we'll get blamed for it anyway. So perhaps we should own own that a little bit more. So then I guess to go to the other part of your question, so what, what do we do about that? So I think I think about what tools do we have available to us? I think working in the Middle East, one of the things that when I got there was like, oh, why is everything so focused on marketing and this perception is reality? But over time, I realised that was actually a pretty big thing. And even back in Australia now in recent years, that is a pretty big thing. And how you present and market is definitely a skill I think planners probably need to understand a lot more. And that gets into how we present our information. How do we use um, data? How do we use technology to present our information um, and represent the work we do? I think, you know, sometimes we still use lots of words when a diagram, an illustration, a graphic is much better to present the information. I think we've we've probably stepped away a bit from research and the importance of research and the value of research to help with the work that we do and presenting that to community. And I think sometimes community probably want, want to hear about that because it, it presents some robustness around the work that we've done. But probably one of the big things I think is around communication and that's one of the things um, I've certainly seen has become more important. I remember when I did my early days of planning, it was if you did social planning, you did community consultation. But I think it's much more than that now. We have to be um, a lot better at the way we communicate, the way we represent information, present information, the way we stand by positions, use data, use technology, all of those things, I think, and for me now, particularly in government, at the beginning of a project, we have communications and engagement right at the beginning. It's, it's not an afterthought. You can't leave it till later. It's got to be all the way through projects and work when you do it and thinking about how internally, externally, different ways that you're communicating. So I think as planners, if we, if we don't want to be the scapegoat for some of this, we also need to step in and um, use it, use the tools we have available to us in in a bit better way than probably what we've been doing. Thank you. Thanks so much, Erin. Well, I can see why you've had such a fantastic career to date and I think a lot of what you said would have really resonated with many of the planners listening. Um, I really like your message about communication and it's clear that you're talking not only that planners themselves need to communicate better with the community but also get uh, better at internal communication including that old chestnut franken fearless and robust and expert technical advice thanks erin we're going to open it up now i've got i've got questions that many of you in the audience have already sent in ahead of today and so we're going to try and get through as many of those as possible the first of which I'm going to throw over to Peter who's obviously really totally sick of people misunderstanding deliberately or otherwise the story about planning and housing and I'm going to invite you to answer this question two ways 
I was going to ask you whether there was a wider community education role that university academics should engage in. But, um, and here's a special uh, shout out to Peter Tulip, now uh, formerly of the Reserve Bank of Australia, now of the Centre of Independent Studies, who's actually asked a more pointed question, Peter. And he's asked whether the two opposing sides of the zoning debate, which is the debate about whether zoning is the cause of housing affordability and um, housing supply and affordability problems or isn't, whether the two opposing sides of that debaters, as Peter sees it, should engage with each other more. Okay, no, thanks for that, Nicole. Um, no, no, I think... Um... I think uh, universities and indeed the profession could probably do a little bit more about um, educating people about what, how the planning system works these days. And um, particularly um, some of those agencies that um, Peter Chillip referred to in his, um, in his message. I, I, I do think there might be a few other people on the other side of the zoning debate other than just the Henry Halloran Trust. But um, um, for instance, the Planning Institute of Australia might be interested in, in that conversation. But I think I think the problem is a lot of people, particularly economists, are looking at a planning system that they probably heard about when they're undergraduate, where um, you know it was completely controlled by local government. Um, local politics were a huge issue. Um, there wasn't wasn't much state intervention. So I think there's a big role for explaining to people how the planning system actually works. And I think it's I think it's sort of weird that a lot of people are writing things about the planning system, um, making pronouncements on the planning system. They would, wouldn't have the foggiest idea of how the mod a modern planning system works or what planners do. And I always find that pretty weird. So um, I think when Peter was actually at the Reserve Bank, I offered to run planning for non-planners in the Reserve Bank. And um, I think he was reasonably positive about it, but we could never, we could never get it organised. Um, but I think that would be useful. Um, people are incredibly bemused when, when you know, they, they say we'll only get more housing in, in Sydney when we reform local government. And um, we've taken, and I'm sure a lot, lot of local government planners listening would agree with this, local government's role has been really downplayed by the panelisation of planning. So a lot of decisions are made by expert panels in, in, in New South Wales. Um, local government gets excluded from that process. And even things like rezoning, um, you know, if you're a developer, you're trying to get something rezoning and the local government knocks you back, you've got mechanisms to go to um, regional um, panels or in Sydney district panels to get that rezoning started. So I think I think there's a, a an education role in trying to explain to people how the modern planning system works. And it's not the way it worked when, you know, they um, were doing um, economics back in the day when um, planning systems, I think, were much more constraining. And even, even taking examples from overseas, I mean, planning systems are very different. You wouldn't compare the Australian um, you know, health system with the American health system, where regularly, you know, you read the Grattan Institute, they use American literature talking about how planning's choking um, housing supply, when I probably, in some American cities, I completely agree with them, but it's a very different planning system that operates in, in Australia. So I think we could include that conversation, but I think there's a real institute. And here's a role for the media. I suspect, um, Eliza, that a lot of modern journalists have got no idea about how the planning system operates. So, again, they they think that um, Ross Gittins always writes about local governments and, you know, controlling rezonings. Um, 
I, I think um, something to try and get the media in, in the loop would be useful as well. Thanks, Peter. I am actually going to throw to Eliza now, but not with that question. We're going to change the pace. And I'm actually going to um, go out on a limb here and make a very risky uh, assumption, Eliza, that you're a little bit younger than the rest of the um, panellists and maybe even part of the generation that is the hardest done by when it comes to housing. And yet I don't think we hear as much anger as I might have otherwise expected from millennials and even people younger than that. Do they not care or are they, you know, are they just chosen, you know, the avocado and toast uh, sort of route or are they ill-equipped, do you think, to engage in these public debates? Great question. So I am a millennial and I'm also a renter. Um, I wouldn't say I'm in a hard done by a cohort because, you know, I'm, I, I, I can afford my lifestyle. The issue that I think a lot of renters in, in my situation who, who can enjoy their lifestyle and have enough income to service their rent uh, is the fact that home ownership has been somewhat set up as an end goal for stability in retirement, you know. It's not about taking a short-term view necessarily of whether you own or not. It's about realising that if you're 60, 70, whatever the retirement age it, uh, becomes at that point, if you're not on your full-time income anymore and you're still trying to service rents or you're still trying to service a mortgage, you're in a lot of trouble. And there's been a lot of research that supports the idea that home ownership then becomes the difference between a comfortable retirement and a life of poverty. Then there is the people who are renting, are struggling on lower incomes, who are much less likely to, to go on that home ownership journey. And we have, uh, you know, a system in Australia that, that really doesn't focus on, on them as much, I don't think. Uh, I, th I think you also got a lot of that asymmetry through COVID where it was, you know, we'll defer the mortgage repayments and we'll set up JobKeeper and we'll, we'll make sure everyone's got a roof over their head. But in some states, when it came to renters, it was like, oh, you'll figure it out with your landlord. Like the, the, the response is really interesting. And I think that we, we should be, uh, I think that another journalist was telling me of an economist who said, I don't understand why young people were not rioting in the streets about housing in Australia. And I think it's either they, they don't potentially have that knowledge of what it means for us that, that housing is becoming less and less accessible or they're just in a more, I don't know, affluent position where they probably will become homeowners one day and it, and it doesn't really matter for them. Um, but, yeah, I think there's a lot there to be critiqued and a lot to be angry about. Hey, everyone, Dallas Rogers here, and thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.